Well, as they're doing that, uh, we are in week two of our series, What Did He Say? Uh, a series where we are taking a look at the things that Jesus said and some of the things that, that he said that make you just kind of scratch your head and go, what? Like, really? Did he really mean that? Did, did Jesus really mean what he said? Surely he didn't really mean that, or that would have huge implications for us, right? Last week we looked at the what we called the, the vampirish statement of Jesus when he said, this is my body and this is my blood, eat it and drink it, and we kind of examined what that was all about, and if you missed that, I encourage you to, to check that out either on the podcast or the website, and you can see where we went with that text and, and how that uh, applies to us. This week, I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9, and uh, that's where we're going to be landing here in just a few minutes, and as you turn there, I think it's important that we realize that as Jesus was teaching his disciples and the audience, uh, Jesus, his, in his teaching, it was his goal and his desire that people would respond to what he was saying and that life change would happen. And we believe that that is still true here today. The reason we gather together and we worship and is not only to be encouraged, but it's also an opportunity for us to hear the word of God, to, to be challenged by what it says, and to respond to it. And so as we read the word of God on a Sunday morning, and hopefully as you read the word of God throughout your week, you will allow it to speak to you and you will respond to it and allow God to change your life from the inside out. Because that's, that's what, we're, what we're striving for. And, and this morning, I, I want to challenge you as we walk through this text to wrestle with the question, how is God calling you to respond today? How does he want you to respond to the truth in his word today? And, and so just kind of have that in the back of your mind as we, we walk through this this morning. I grew up um, outside of a small town in rural Missouri, and because of that, it afforded me the opportunity to have a a lot of uh, different type of exposures to to different things. Uh, Back in the day, I was pretty athletic and relatively smart, all right? I was what you would call a big fish in a little pond, okay? I, I was able to to uh, work hard. I was taught the value of working hard growing up on a farm and how to treat people with respect. And because of those things, I was pretty successful. Four-year letterman in three sports in high school. I was the president of my senior class, senior class valedictorian. I escorted the homecoming queen to her perch. I also was dating the homecoming queen at the time. Selected a student athlete of the year for the state of Missouri. My name and picture was in the newspaper almost every week because of one accomplishment or another. And and that's just the way it was. And and I have to tell you, I was the man, right? (laughs) And I also have to tell you that I really enjoyed it. The truth of the matter is, to be real transparent, I still kind of enjoy it. I kind of enjoy being important. Don't you? Don't you like to be important as well? Uh, see, I, I would suggest that, that all of us, most of us at least, we want to be viewed as important. We want to be seen as significant. We want to be, as Gru would say in Despicable Me, a big deal, right? That's what we want to be. And while that may look different from one person to another, I think we all kind of want to be valued. We want to be esteemed. We want to be appreciated and respected. We want to be great. And the way we go about doing that, the way we go about looking for that significance is in many different avenues of our life. Usually it's in the categories of our performance, right? 
what we do, what we are able to achieve, our possessions, those things that we've been able to accumulate, our title, or who we know, or where we go, or where we sit at lunch in school, right, that says something about who we are, how we look, and many, many more things that I don't have time to just walk through all those, but in, in an attempt to assign ourselves greatness, we compete and we compare and we try to figure out where we rank and how great we really are. We rank our accomplishments. We give them a value on this scale system that we've kind of figured out. And we compare with other people. For instance, um, you maybe have heard a conversation like this. Maybe you've even been involved in a conversation like this. I have heard and been involved in a conversation like this. Conversation goes something along these lines, and you can kind of put it in any situation you want. But um, the conversation is, so, hey, how's it going? Good, good, yeah. I'm, I actually got up and ran today. Oh, yeah? You did? You went out for a run? Yeah. Before church, I, you know, I got up and went out and got my run in this morning. Oh, yeah? How far did you go? Four miles. Oh, four miles. Good for you. That's good. Good. So how are things going for you? Oh, good. Yeah, I did five this morning. <laughs> right? But, I mean, don't we do that? And what are we doing? Maybe even subconsciously, but we're saying, yeah, what you're doing is great, but I'm just a little better. I ran just a little farther. I ran just a little faster. I can do it just a little bit better than you. And it's not that we have this mindset that we have to beat everyone out there. Just you. <laughs> that's our goal. And we try to rank and compare. Or maybe that's just me. Is anybody else identified with that? Throw me a like. Thank you very much. I have a few honest people here this morning. Appreciate that. What we're going to look at today, I think, is going to hopefully challenge our thinking on how we assign greatness and hopefully as, as well as make us evaluate what is truly important or significant in our life as we search to try to be important and significant. And as we jump into the text this morning, it's important to kind of understand part of the mindset of the people that Jesus, when he's talking to them. Israel is under Roman rule at this time. And before Rome ruled Israel, it was Greece. And before Greece, it was Persia. Before Persia, it was the Babylonian Empire. Before the Babylonian Empire, it was Assyria. Before Assyria, the point of the matter is, they'd been under occupied rule for over 600 years. They didn't have this sense of identity of themselves. They were ruled by other nations. And enter into the scene, this Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he do? He starts talking about the kingdom of God. He starts talking about this new kingdom that he's going to establish. That he is going to set Israel free. And all the disciples are going, yeah, we want some of that, right? They, they want to be that because Jesus is talking about this new kingdom. And he doesn't just mention it once. He mentions it over a hundred times throughout the Gospels. And to the disciples, this new kingdom meant armies, right? It meant having armies. It, it meant ruling. It meant having power. It meant having authority. It meant having this significance. It meant a king. And with the king, that meant a big deal. They knew that Jesus having this new kingdom, Jesus being the king, it meant a big deal. Because if Jesus was going to sit on the throne, then the people that were closest to Jesus, they would be right up there too, right? They've aligned themselves with the guy who's going to free Israel. Can you imagine how excited they are about that? And they think, if I can get close to Jesus, if I am the closest to Jesus, then I'm going to be top dog, you know, right below Jesus. And that's really good enough. And you know what? We do the same thing today as well. At least I think we do. 
we desire that uh, we get close to other people, maybe not even necessarily because we like them, but because that relationship in some form or fashion is going to benefit us. It's the old statement, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And we live that. We want to get close to the popular kid at school, the power broker in the office, the dominant mother in the homeroom, the coach of our kid's sports team. We strive to get close or gain an edge or gain an audience or get an end so that that will benefit us at some point and we can use that to our advantage. And maybe sometimes we even do it subconsciously, and yet we do. And the disciples... In their desire to be great, they're trying to position themselves close to Jesus. And in doing so, what happens? Well, an argument breaks out. We've talked about this before. They argued about who is the greatest. You can almost hear them arguing, right? They're putting their credentials up on the wall. Oh, yeah, well, Jesus called me first. Yeah, yeah, you're sitting underneath a tree. You're just a fisherman, right? Well, he called me. Hey, hey, guys, hey, I'm the best. We all know it. I walked on water. Oh, yeah, but you sank, Rocky. Don't forget that, right? You know, Jesus asked me to pass him the bread. I was sitting close to him. Oh, yeah, well, he asked me for the salt. And then he talked about saltiness. Remember, you know, and so they're just arguing over who is the best. There's, they're arguing about who's closest because whoever's the closest to Jesus, therefore, that makes them a big deal. And as they're arguing about it, I think Jesus is fully aware of the fact that they have missed the point. And so as they're arguing... Jesus understands that they're talking about this literal kingdom here on earth. And Jesus is trying to get them to see that there's a kingdom that's far more important. And far different and and far more amazing than anything that they were ever thinking about. And to show them this, Jesus starts talking about dying. If you remember about three weeks ago, we talked about Jesus telling his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem and I must do these things. And, and, And a dead king to them, really not that appealing, right? And so Peter pulls Jesus aside and he says, hey, don't talk like that. You're scaring the children. James and John are hiding underneath the table, right? You got you to gotta be nice here. Don't, don't say such things. But Jesus tells him, I am a king. I am the king. And I'm a king who's going to give my life away. And in giving my life away, more people will follow me than ever before. And in our text today, we see Jesus saying something that will make the disciples scratch their head and go, what did he say? Because it's radically different than anything that they'd ever were, had heard before or heard since. It's any, different than, than anything that they were ever thinking. It's different than what they had hoped for and, and different than what they had dreamed. In verse 35 of Mark chapter 9, the text says this. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And you got to think that the disciples are like, what? To be first, you have to be last and be a servant? That, you know, does not compute, right? Because that's not the way it worked in that society of the day. It's not the way it works in our society today either, is it? I mean, we have great philosophers that have scoped, that have, that have helped shape the way we think in this world. Great philosophers like Ricky Bobby, who says, if you ain't first, you're last, Right? <laughs> They've helped us understand what this world is all about. Jesus is saying, look, guys, and he, he sits down and he kind of huddles them up. And he says, I know that what you're, what you're seeking is, is prominence and significance and greatness. But you're never going to find it by being first. If you desire to be first in my new kingdom, serve. That's what he tells them. 
Give your life away for others. And that's the very thing that Jesus would do for them and he would do for us. Greatness is not about what you have, but who you help. Greatness is not about having people serve you, but about you serving people. Now, I want to be clear so that you don't misunderstand. I don't think Jesus is against uh, us achieving things or having success. God created us with a desire and an ability to achieve and to work and to accomplish. But that success or that achievement or that greatness was never intended to take the place of God or to satisfy your soul. It just can't. The only thing that can do that is God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And to illustrate this point that that Jesus makes about the first being last and and the last being first, those types of things, look at what he does. In verse 36, the text says, He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Can you picture this for just a moment? You have the disciples who were standing around, and Jesus sets down, so all the disciples sit down with him. And he takes a child and puts them in the middle of the huddle. And you have to understand, Just uh, I'm going to peel back the curtain just a little bit, because the way you would learn is you would sit and the person in charge would stand. And so for a brief moment here, we have the disciples sitting with Jesus, and a child walks in, almost in a position of authority. And Jesus says... Here's a child, right? Can can you picture that? And then taking that child into his arms, he says, when you welcome children, you welcome me, and you welcome my father. Now, we think about that in our society and in our culture today, and we're like, okay, that, that makes sense. We have to be nice to kids. That's no big deal, because we live in a society today where kids are loved and adored and taken care of. And God tells me that what I need to do is take care of kids, And if I take care of kids and if I'm nice to them, I will be welcoming to him? Then bring on the kids, right? I know that they need help in the nursery. I could do that if that means welcoming Jesus, right? I can can sign up for that. Sign me up. Children in our society, they're valued. According to uh, policy analysis done by, by Michael Tanner, in 2011, the U.S. spent nearly $1 trillion in welfare, with over $9 billion of that designated for children five years old and under, not to mention all the assistance offered by non-government agencies and churches. Kids are a big deal, right? In our society and culture today, children are valued and they're important. But during the time of Jesus, things were different. In the biblical culture, children were not sweet and adorable and precious. Well, they were, they just weren't viewed that way. Instead, Children were seen as property. When a child was born, it would be placed at the feet of the father. And if the father picked up that child, then the child was welcomed into the family. But if the, chi- if the father turned his back on the child, then that child would be placed outside. And that child would no longer be a part of the family. And in certain parts of the world still today, if a child is deformed or a twin or, or not what they wanted, the same thing still happens in, in some form or fashion. And this was especially true if the firstborn was a girl because the firstborn was desired to be a boy. And when the child was placed outside, the child could die or the child might be, you know, picked up by someone who could come along and and provide for them a a loving home. Or that child could be put in an opportunity or, or a place where that person saw that child as an opportunity to own a slave. And then the child would be raised as such. In this culture... 
with the mindset that the people had. That's what Jesus was speaking into. The Roman philosopher Seneca, who was alive during the time, during the earthly ministry of Jesus, wrote, We slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge the knife into sickly cattle, children who are born weakly and deformed, we drown. And we read that today and we're like, what? If you do a little research into the treatment of of children and even the views of the esteemed Aristotle, it is sobering what they did to children. And so what does Jesus do? He takes a little child and he puts them, puts the child in the middle of this little group and says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And I think Jesus is saying to the disciples, hey, you're trying to be great. You're climbing up this ladder of success and influence and ranking yourself, but you're missing what is most important. You're missing the opportunities that are right in front of you. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to us still today. Are we missing the opportunities that are right in front of us? Who is right there in front of you that you are missing because you are too preoccupied or distracted or focused on your own stuff and your own goals and your own greatness? Who is it that you're missing? How do we respond to the needs of those who need our help but can do nothing for us in return? Who is it that needs your help? Who is it? Talk to the dads for just a minute. So, you know, wives and mothers, just don't listen because it's going to be incriminating enough without you giving us one of those, okay? But, but dads, it could be your own children. They need you to engage with them. And I know it's tough, and I know it's awkward, and I know you feel inadequate. Believe me, I know I have two teenage daughters and a son who's quickly becoming a young man. I get it that sometimes you're just like, I don't know what to do. But your children need you. Don't leave it up to Ian and Courtney and the rest of the youth staff and their limited time with them to be the only positive spiritual influence that is there on your child. I had the opportunity to serve in youth ministry for over 14 years, and I cannot tell you the number of students that came through the ministry program who they, they had, uh, had food, they had a place to stay, they were in a loving family, they were given a car whenever it was time for them to be able to drive, they had the right clothes, they had a quality education, they had all the latest gadgets and toys and all that stuff, but when it came down to the important stuff, they were emotionally starving and they were spiritually malnourished because their parents didn't feed them. They weren't there for them emotionally. They weren't there for them spiritually. The point is, your kids need you. They need you. So maybe the person that's right in front of you that needs you is is your child. Maybe, maybe that person is your spouse. Maybe they're the ones that are right there in front of you and you you just miss them. Teenagers, maybe it's your parents. Maybe they need you. You may not even realize it, but they need you to, to not be so socially engaged that you forget your family. Maybe, adult, it's still your parents that still need you and still need you to, to be a part of their life. Maybe it's, it's someone that you go to school with or, or somebody you work with. Someone on the tennis team or on the drama club or, or a neighbor or a carpool parent or, or a teacher at school. It, it, it may be a person sitting in the row next to you. It may be the person sitting next to you. 
Who is it that is right there? Someone who's around you that needs you, but you're too preoccupied with your own stuff and becoming great in your own mind to even notice them. You see, this is difficult for us, especially in the society in which we live today, because it's all about us. But if you really want to serve someone, it takes two very significant and very important things. The first thing it takes is time. Your most precious and most valuable commodity, time. If you're going to serve someone else, it takes time. The other thing it takes is your attention. It takes your attention. Those things kind of go hand in hand. They need your time and they need your attention. I I can spend time with my wife and my kids, but if I'm checking my phone every three minutes to see the score of the game or who's doing what or if I've gotten that email or whatever it is, then, then I'm not giving them my attention. And then if I do give them my attention and I say to my kids, so how was your day and make it quick, I've got two minutes, so give me the Reader's Digest version, go. I'm not giving them my time. That's not valuable. They don't feel valued or great or or important when you do that. It, It doesn't work. It takes time. It takes attention. It's an investment in that other person. And Jesus is teaching the disciples, and I think he's teaching us today as well, don't miss the in front of you opportunity. Don't miss the in front of you opportunities. And here's the truth, and I hope you understand the heart of what I'm about to say in this. The truth is this. You do not need a church. You do not need a church title. You do not need church authorization or a church-supported program or anything like that to serve other people. You can do it without the church. And I think in a lot of cases, it will actually mean more and be more effective if you serve because you want to and not just because your church has a program, but you serve because you're a believer and you believe that's what God has called you to do. Whenever I serve someone, I often get the, well, yeah, you're a pastor. It's like, you know, honestly, that has nothing to do with it. I'm a believer. Jesus is my Savior. That's why I'm doing this. I'd like to think I'd do this whether I was a pastor or not. And that's why it's so much more effective and a lot more times more impactful when you do it. Because you're not supposed to. You do it because you've been called to. And I love the fact, don't, don't misunderstand, I love the fact that our church has organized, you know, church-sponsored activities and opportunities to serve and to go out and make a difference in the community. And we are encouraging in your small groups this week to find an opportunity to serve and to make a difference in someone else's life or in a family's life. But I think it's very powerful when you as an individual, when you volunteer at the Crisis Pregnancy Center because you feel called to serve there, whenever you, you tutor students because you want them to be successful in school, When you go to the nursing home just to brighten someone's day. When you take a sandwich to the homeless person underneath the bridge. When you stop and help that person with a flat tire. When you hold open the door or you give them a cart or you let them have the parking spot. Or or you're just simply polite and courteous when it's really much easier to, you know, do that and, and go about your day. You're just simply served because there's someone in front of you that has a need. And because you can. Now I'd like to be able to tell you that when we hear a message like this, that life is different and we get it and things change, but it didn't even change for the disciples. They didn't get it. The reality is just one chapter later, if you were to flip over there, they're preventing children from coming to Jesus and Jesus has to kind of teach them the same lesson again. You've got James and John who are arguing. You've even got James and John's mom coming and asking Jesus for the best seats and they just didn't get it. And I'm not sure when they had that aha moment that we've talked about before. But my guess, it was sometime after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus into heaven, 
at the point that they realized, oh, he was really talking about not here. He was really talking about a different kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. It's not about earth. It's, it's oh, oh, I think that's when they got it at some point. So what about you? When did you have your aha moment? Or what will it take for you to have your aha moment? For some people that I've talked to, it's, it's when their first child graduates from high school. They kind of stop and go, wow, where did that time go? And what am I really doing with my life? For others, it's the diagnosis that they receive back from the doctor. It's the tragedy of someone close to them dying. It's the loss of a friend or or a broken relationship. It could be that after 15 or 20 years of marriage, your spouse looks at you and says, you know what, I I love you, but I just don't want this anymore. I'm done. And it's in moments like those that you start to reevaluate your priorities and what you're seeking and how you're striving and what you're ranking and and all those things and, and areas in which you invest your time. And here's what's so amazing, especially when it comes to this idea of marriage where one person is checked out and the other spouse is, is come to me and they're sitting in my office and they so, say something along the lines of, I would do anything to get her back. I would do anything to get him back. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And that is uh, admirable and, and that's the right attitude to have and that's a good start. But here's what I wrestle with. And I wrestle with this in my own life. Why are we so willing to do whatever it takes in the crisis, but we neglect doing those things before the crisis or in an effort to never have the crisis? How much more valuable is the investment of your time and your attention because you desire that for the relationship versus a last-ditch effort to save the relationship? How much more valuable is it if someone serves you because they want to, not because they have to? I know people who spend their whole life climbing and striving and working toward greatness only to find a, a pink slip and this very nice little parting gift. And by the time they can get off the property, the nameplate has been changed, someone else is at the desk, and the machine rolls on. I don't say that to imply that you shouldn't work hard. Or to say that you shouldn't do well and make a difference and and contribute to society and maybe even make it better for those that follow you. But my point is this. If you are looking for greatness and fulfillment and satisfaction in those things, you will never find it. It is not there. See, the irony of the scripture, this section of scripture, is that the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest and who was closest to Jesus. They were all seeking to become great and important. And you want to know the truth? If you step back and really look at it, they already were great. They were already great. They were already significant. They were already important. And do you know why? Because Jesus Christ was the leader of their small group. Anybody else have Jesus leading their small group this week? No. Jesus was leading their small group. I mean, think about that for a minute. They were being invested into and mentored by Jesus. God himself in flesh. That's a big deal, right? They were looking and they were striving and they were arguing about something they already had. They just didn't realize it. And the ironic thing is for us, 
as believers, we do the exact same thing. We're, we're searching and striving and stepping on others and climbing. And we have this desire to be great. We have this desire to be a big deal. But what we fail to remember is that because of what Jesus Christ did for us, we are already a big deal. You are already a big deal. The cross of Jesus Christ gives you significance. The cross says that you're not a ranking, but instead you have been ransomed and you have been rescued. You are important. And it doesn't change based on your accomplishments or your net worth or anything. It's fixed because of Jesus. It's not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon Jesus. And that is good news. Amen? Maybe today you feel like in your life that because of things that have happened in your job or your plans or your accomplishments or because of a season in life, you just don't, you just don't feel very valued. You just don't feel very important. Or you just don't feel special or, or valuable or great at all. And I just want to remind you that God in heaven gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, for you and for me. And that makes us valuable beyond words. It gives you greatness that cannot be measured. And can you just rest in that for a minute? Can we quit striving and clawing and putting other people down and and just seeking and just rest in being significant for Him? See, I believe that we're called to rest in that. And I also think we're called to respond to that by looking around us and considering how am I going to treat the people that are right in front of me? How how am I going to treat those that Jesus gave his life for? You see, when we get that, when we can finally get that through our thick skulls and we can start actually living that way, when we're not competing for greatness, that's when we truly begin to serve because we understand we're already great. I don't need another plaque on the wall. I don't need my name in the paper. I don't need to be whatever that is. I am already important because of who God made me to be. So how will you respond to him today? You can keep right on going the way you're going, and you'll probably be okay. You can keep competing and ranking and striving and trying to conquer, or you can take advantage of those opportunities. And as you have success in life because you're a diligent worker and you you pursue the things that God is calling you to pursue, would you also serve people? And would you treat them the way God has treated you? Which is by demonstrating love and compassion and meeting needs even when they can do nothing for you. We invite you to respond. If you want to talk to someone about your response today, we invite you to make your way over to the cross as we sing this song. Maybe you just need to talk to the person standing next to you. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to say, I don't know what you need to do, but I know you need to respond. And we invite you to do that today. Stand with me. We're going to sing. You respond.